Let's take a look at the subject of Hanukkah, <coughs> being that it's uh, <coughs> Kislev already. <coughs> See if we can get a little deeper underneath the skin of the the idea, the central idea of Hanukkah this time of year, what it means, place it in context historically and spiritually if we can. Perhaps we can start like this. <coughs> you know, when we when the Rambam talks about, Maimonides talks about what the Greeks did, the battle that the Greeks fought against the Jewish people, he uses an expression, he says that they came to negate our religion. Bitluis dosom, right? Bitluet datam. That they came to negate the Jewish religion, I guess. It's very hard to translate the word dat, but something like that. They came against <coughs> our religion, Judaism. That's what they did. And the question really is, what does it mean to negate the religion? It already says that they pre- prevented or prohibited the practice of mitzvahs. They forbade Torah learning. They did that, clearly. What additional element? Again, cons- stay with me carefully. Not, not, a simple, not a simple thing, this. What is the notion of negating your religion if not to stop you doing mitzvahs and learning Torah? What, what, what what additional spiritual element is there <coughs> that's not contained in those terms? To put it another way, on during Allah Nisim, you know, with the, the, what we say on, on Hanukkah in the benching and in the davening, in the in the tefillah, in the prayers, we say we say that they came lashkicham teirasecha, lashkicham toratecha, to make us forget your Torah. How do you make somebody forget something that he knows? What do you do to make somebody forget something that he knows? What does that mean exactly? Again, apart from the taking us away from the observance, Jewish observance, <coughs> they came to make us forget. What does that mean? Let's try to analyze this deeply, deeply as we can. I hope we'll learn something new. I hope we'll learn something new here. Let's try to place it in context like this and also learn, if we can, a methodology of analyzing a Torah subject, right? at least from one particular perspective, will be a tool I, I hope we'll be able to take further and use. The issue is this. Historically, first of all, you know, Hanukkah fits at an amazing juncture in Jewish history, perhaps one of the most important and most uh, <coughs> dramatic <coughs> transitions <coughs> in the history of the world. <coughs> Hanukkah took place just after the beginning, close to the beginning of the Second Temple period. Right, the Second Temple, if you want to place it in historical terms, in terms of dating, the Second Temple lasted for over 400 years. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 of the Common Era. <coughs> so you're talking about 300 odd years, nearly 400 years, <coughs> 350 years before the beginning of the Common Era. You're talking about 2,350 2, uh, odd years ago, something like that. The beginning of the Second Temple period <coughs> was a remarkable time in Jewish history. <coughs> the reason that it was remarkable, and again we've discussed this from various perspectives before, <coughs> is because at that time prophecy ended. <coughs> in fact, right around there, the event <coughs> of prophecy ending, when, the, lights, when the, the light of the world went dark, as it were, where there's no longer a spiritual message that was clearly heard, was a watershed time in Jewish history. From that time on, there were many Jewish communities that dated history from that moment. Right? There are two ways to date history. One is from the creation of the world, as is our common practice. There's another way to date historical events, to date years, from the year that prophecy ended. <coughs> What's called in the sources, Mishnat Pisuk Nevu'ah, from the year that prophecy ended. In, some, in the Yemenite communities, until very recently, maybe even now, legal documents were dated like that. <coughs> legal documents were dated <coughs> how many years it was after prophecy had ended. <coughs> Why is that? What does it mean? Essentially, when prophecy ended, the world changed radically. Until then, in spiritual terms, the world was, was alive with the spiritual message. That means it was the time of the written law, prophets existed, the Gemara says that there were more than 1,200,000 yeah, prophets, I mean more than a million prophets existed over the odd thousand years odd, which means the Jewish people and the world in general were steeped in a 
in an awareness. People's ordeal then wasn't, you know, atheism like it is now. People, there was no option then not to believe, if you want to use that English word, in that which is higher. That wasn't the problem. People had other problems. For example, the central problem then was an incredible pull to idolatry. An almost irresistible craving to transcend in consciousness and attach to something beyond in an idolatrous sense. In fact, so much so that the Gemara says the way prophecy ended, and again we'll have to discuss this in much more detail, <coughs> but the way prophecy ended was that the men of the great assembly, the Ansheikh Nessus Agdala, that convocation of sages who lived around that time, who lived at the beginning of the second bias, the second temple, they were the ones who ended prophecy. And the reason they did it was because the pull to idolatry was so powerful and so attractive that people were succumbing to it to a, to a degree that made it no longer worth having. Anytime you have a pull to something negative, that's your greatness, because in overcoming it, right, is, is, where, you, is where you grow. You want to pick up weights in the gymnasium, if that's your, that's your idea of life. Then the, you want to pick up weights as heavy as possible, because the heavier the weight that you pick up, the more you build muscle. On the other hand, if you overdo it, you won't build muscle, you'll damage yourself. So when the proportion, when the weights get to be as heavy as you can productively pick up, that's what you want. That's what you want. <clears throat> but when the weights get to a point that they become so heavy that you'll only get damaged, that it's not worth exercise anymore. Right? If you're into a much more sensible and refined sport like heavyweight boxing, for example, no. then you want to fight people who are more or less on your level, as challenging as possible, but not so good that they break your jaw every time you fight, because then the damage is going to be worse than it's worth. The point, I presume, is, is clear. And therefore, when the spiritual adversary, namely the temptation to worship idols, became so strong that it was no longer worth the benefit, the men of the Great Assembly said, please keep it and keep its reward. And they exorcised from the human spirit. They surgically extracted from the human psyche the ability to attach to prophecy, the ability to attach to idolatry, the desire to transcend in that sense. And the Gemara has a detailed description of how they did it. <coughs> Without laboring the point, what they did was, <coughs> they said, they first of all called up this desire for idolatry, and it came flaming out of the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kodoshim. Obviously it lives in the holiest place on earth, because the desire to transcend is the holiest and most elevated and refined part of the human psyche. Of course it can transcend correctly or wrongly, but it's the same ecstasy, right? The human being can transcend and meet and, and connect with Hashem in a correct form of attachment, or it can transcend in an invalid direction, namely the correct direction, but stop halfway at the intermediaries, which is called idolatry, and that is the temptation. So they brought up this element of the human psyche, which is Kabbalistically denoted as being somewhere here, where the tefillin are worn, where a child's skull is open. We'll have to talk about a child's consciousness, very relevant to the subject. Where a baby's skull is open... The fontanelle. You can feel the brain of a child pulsate there, right? <coughs> this is incidentally why we wear tefillin. Tefillin, the deep Kabbalistic reason, it's a reopening of that connection. Right? Tefillin in Kabbalistic writing is called Bekir Samoichin, which means the brain is bursting out there, or the light is bursting in. That's what it is. But this is the, the source. The source is this organ or faculty in the human soul that can transcend and connect with that which is beyond. It's, there's no ecstasy greater than that, you can imagine. You're talking about a person expanding into that which is infinite, going beyond the self, from the, expanding beyond the limited and finite notion of self into that which is larger. There's no ecstasy or no attraction like that, and that's why it was the most powerful drive in the human, <coughs> in the human experience. The spiritual drive. Not the animal drive down, the spiritual drive up. You know, the human being is driven in two directions. He has a yetze, he has a desire to indulge the body on the one side, and on the other, the desire to indulge the ego, or the spirit. Both of those have kosher and unkosher applications. We're talking about the higher one. Usually, younger people are more, <coughs> younger people are more given to concern about pleasures of the body. Older people are more given to concern about dignity and honor and respect and so on. It's like that. A young man usually... His temptations usually are in the flesh. And an older man, usually his temptations are in being respected, honored, admired. So it usually goes like that. But that was the desire. And they decided, so they brought it up and they killed it. And when they killed the desire for idolatry, uh, incidentally, a message here that's also important, they thought that they were being given favor. Hashem acceded to their request. And therefore there's a principle in Jewish in Jewish thinking, that when, you, when things are going well, ask for more. Ask for more. On the contrary, there's a, there's a principle that when you ask for a when you pray, when you daven, if your request is granted, the first thing you should do is ask for more. Right? When you see, yeah, 
in English you call it be finding yourself on a good wicket. Right? That's a local that's a local terminology. When the wicket is good, you take advantage. Right? It's called in Hebrew an esrotzin. Means you see that your wishes are being granted. That's the time for. Right? That's the time when you go and ask your boss for a favor. Right? And he, without a moment's hesitation, he says, "Absolutely no problem." Then ask him for a raise. <laughs> then ask him for a day off. And that's the time, right? That's the time until he says no. Then take advantage. And spiritually, if you're asking for things correctly spiritually, you should take advantage. He wants to give you. So they decided to, to adapt the human psyche in another way as well. Once they were already manipulating and correcting the human psyche, surgically operating it according to their understanding, which is in the power of the sages, we're talking about humanity, not just Jews. They decided to correct the human psyche in another way. Namely, not on the top, but down below as well. The attraction of male for female, they decided, could be improved. A lot of the world's problems are due right, to the male-female interaction that gets beyond its borders, and therefore limitations. They decided to exorcise that from the world as well. <coughs> so they exorcised and extracted from the human psyche a man's desire for, a, for women. They took that out of the world, thinking it would be a big improvement. In fact, what happened was, for three days after that, there were no fresh eggs laid in Israel. The chickens could not lay eggs. Right? Because the power of reproduction in this area, and Rashi, of course, in his commentary points out, Rashi asks a logical question. The question is, what do you mean for three days there were no eggs? Chickens have eggs in their bodies a long time before they laid. So eggs that have already been present in the body of the chicken, at least those should have been laid. Rashi says, no, because the body heat of the chickens had gone down. They couldn't even incubate and develop the eggs that were already inside them. Right? Because when this desire leaves the world, the whole world cools down. So the sages realized, if that were going to be the case, there'd be no more human race. And therefore, they had to bring back, yes, this interactional desire so that the human race could propagate. But they tried to bring it back more creative, more constructively. And so they said like this, instead of bringing back man's desire for a woman, we'll bring back only a man's desire for his wife. A man will no longer have a feeling for a woman other than his wife. Can you imagine what the world would look like? <laughs> and they tried. But they got a note from heaven that was written, Min lo yahavi palga. From heaven they do not give halves. Meaning, it's an important message, I'm bringing this out for a reason. That means spiritually, you either have it or you don't. If there's an organ in the body, right, let's say the liver, and you take out the organ, you take out that organ, you lose all the functions of the liver. You can't take an organ out of the body and expect half the functions to remain. And therefore, a person either has this drive and desire or they don't. You can't, you can't take out half of it. And therefore, they were forced to bring it back in general. But they managed to modify it slightly, which is a remarkable thing, not our subject tonight, is that from that generation on, they managed to reinstill in the human heart, in the male in the male psyche, an attraction for women in general, but not for his close relatives. And from that time on, men no longer had a natural drive for his sister or mother. Right? Which was a big spiritual improvement. Yeah, and that's why people today naturally, of course it can be stimulated, you can train yourself in any perversion. You can cook, you can create a desire for almost anything, in case you hadn't noticed. But, um, but people no longer have a natural desire for a close first degree relative, <coughs> that was part of the work on Sheikh Nessus Agdala. I'm mentioning this for a reason, as you'll see shortly. So what happened was, they, they took out of the human mind the desire for idolatry, which was, and that's why people today no longer have a craving to worship fetishes or to transcend in a way that, that has a focus that is other than the divine, right? Of course you realize, people don't have a craving to attach to the divine either. Because when they took that desire to transcend out of the world, they left nothing in its place. You, you, you left an empty space. In fact, what they left us with is today the drive to nonsense, wasting time, and triviality. You see, because they left nothing there. And this we need to discuss separately, and it's a wonderful subject. <clears throat> but the point I want to bring out is this. Listen carefully. At the moment when they took out of the human heart, and human mind, and human consciousness, the ability, the desire to connect with that which is transcendent, in the, in the idolatrous sense, they at the same time were forced to, to extract and remove from the human psyche the ability to be a prophet. And the reason is that that same faculty in the human consciousness that wants to drive beyond and connect which that which is project yourself into that which is beyond is also the sensitive receiver for that which comes from beyond. If you take out a radio transmitter receiver, you take out the radio, you lose the ability to receive and to transmit. Is this clear? 
And therefore, that faculty in the human, the highest, most holy, most intense, most elevated faculty, which is that which craves to connect to that which is beyond, and is able to receive from that which is beyond, was no longer there. Right? The calculation was that it was worth it, they took it out. And from that moment on, people no longer had this incredible, irrational, uh, almost incontrollable desire to worship idols, but they no longer had the ability <coughs> to hear prophecy. And from that moment on, prophecy ended. The Gemara says, from then on, prophecy exists only an, among children, dogs, and insane people. Dogs or animals in general, and people who are technically insane. Now, we have to understand what that means and why, and I hope to be able to, to share with you some insight into that. But that's what happened. And from that time on, there was no experience of prophecy, and that's why nobody knows the future. Nobody knows the future. Astrology does not tell the future. It tells certain currents of energy that can be projected into the future. There is no ability to tell the future anymore, because that's the function of prophecy. It cannot be done. If you know how to access the wisdom of children, or animals, or insane people, you can get clues. Because there are vestiges of prophecy there, and there are methods of doing that which is not our subject tonight, but <coughs> prophecy as such in a cogent, cohesive <coughs> fashion no longer exists. Now, at that moment, the world may be said to have gone dark. Prophecy had left the world, and we entered the zone of the oral law, the wisdom of the sages, where human beings must construct with their own insight and wisdom and Torah wisdom, reconstruct the truth and their own path in the world. You no longer have an absolute point of reference, namely a prophet, to go and ask questions and be able to transcend up to the root. That's when Hanukkah happened. So stay carefully with me for the context. Immediately on that, on that occasion, when prophecy ended, a number of things happened. Now, first of all, that generation who had last seen prophets was Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik was a remnant of the men of the Great Assembly and met Alexander the Great. Alexander marched against Israel, met Shimon HaTzadik and, and withdrew. Two generations later, Hanukkah occurred. The man, the, the, the leader of the Jewish people after Shimon HaTzadik. Shimon HaTzadik was the last sage leader of the Jewish people during whose time the miracle of the oil burning miraculously <coughs> in the temple continued. Sometimes yes and sometimes not. But there was still that evidence of a divine presence. There was still, although there was no prophecy, there was still a vestige of a miraculous, that miraculous event. Why it was oil, why it was a flame that burns, we have to discuss it this time as well. That was the miracle that occurred, which Hanukkah picked up and echoed. After Shimon HaTzadik, who was the last to have seen the prophets, the men of the Great Assembly, lived a man called Antignois Ish Soicha, already a Greek name, the leader of the Jewish people. And Antignois had students for the first time went off the path in terms of Jewish uh, ideological deviation. His two students were Tzadok and Baitis. Tzadok became the leader of the people called the Tztukim, the Sadducees, who were a reforming deviationist branch away from Torah true ideology. They could do that because there were no prophets. Nobody could ever deviate like that when there were prophets. During the generation of the prophets, there was no argument about anything in Torah, an unresolved <coughs> argument. There were no halachic disputes at all, because you could always refer to the clarity of prophecy. Not that the prophets taught halachic material, but they simply brought it down from Sinai, and there was total clarity. For the first time, immediately upon prophecy ending, this deviation began. You could say whatever you wanted, because there was no point of reference in the higher world in prophecy. The next generation was Yosef ben Yazi, Yosef ben Yechanan, the two great leaders, one of whom was killed by the Greeks at the Hanukkah period. Yes? And in the next generation, right then, was the next uh, leader was Yoshua ben Prachia, who was one of the great sages of that generation, whose student was the founder of Christianity. Another movement that split off into an ideological path completely opposed to, to Torah. And again, there was no point of reference uh, in prophecy to, <coughs> to say that just, you see what's happening prophecy brings down Torah the Torah message clearly <coughs> <coughs> immediately upon that disappearing <coughs> the thing branches off into any number of deviationist paths because there's no point of reference anymore <coughs> Yosef and Yez in fact <coughs> was the one who was killed by the, by the Greeks no 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 sir. he was killed by the Greeks in fact the Gemara says while the Greeks were leading him to execute him why? Because he disobeyed the Greek decrees about learning Torah and performing mitzvahs. He was accompanied by his nephew, who was a Hellenist. You have to understand, the Greek inroads into the Jewish people were enormous. Their attempt, as we'll try to understand, was not to kill Jews. They just wanted to affect them philosophically. They just wanted Greeks to th Jews to think like Greeks. They weren't looking to kill Jews. And they were enormously successful. And his nephew, <coughs> nephew of the great Torah sage of the generation, was a Hellenist. So as he was being led out to his execution, the nephew was riding on a horse. And all his finery, uh, an honoured uh, Jewish Greek, 
And as he walked with his uncle, who was about to be killed, he said to his uncle, "Look, who's right now? Yeah, who, who, on whose side is the evidence?" In Hebrew, you say, "Mi alasus." Yeah, who, who's riding the horse? He was riding the horse, right? And his uncle was walk, led, about to be executed. <coughs> so his uncle said to him, "His uncle said to him, can you imagine? Can you imagine that me, yeah, who's b- about to be executed for my Torah beliefs, if this is how Hashem treats those, if this is how Hashem, <coughs> yeah, you who claim to be in the yeah, in the elevated position, right? You who have it all on your side now, if Hashem treats." Those who disobey His will with such <coughs> happiness and ecstasy and honor, can you imagine how He's going to reward those who obey His will? You, who go against His will, right, are rewarded in this incredible fashion. And you feel yourself so great and so mighty. Can you imagine what's in store for those who obey Hashem's will? So he said to his uncle, what are you talking about? You obey Hashem's will and look at you, you're about to be killed. So he said to his nephew, this is what happens to those who obey Hashem's will. Can you imagine the punishment for those who go against Him? That's what he said to him. And that changed his life radically. And that's what happened. But you see, the debate here was between the sage of the Jewish people, defeated by the Greeks, as it were, and the Jew who had become a Hellenist, who had taken their part. This was the battle. <coughs> that battle took place at that juncture in Jewish history when there was no more prophecy. And that's exactly what the Greeks did. Let's understand carefully. Amazing, amazing thing. The Greeks came <coughs> at a time when wisdom in the world was no longer prophetic and spiritual, but was empirical and scientific. That is what the Greeks did. Greek philosophy, understand this deeply, deeply. There's no more important message, because that's our battle. That's our battle. We're not fighting... You have to understand, we've got, we got two ideological courses that go against us. One is the Ishmael type of energy. right? The Arabic threat. Yes, those, yes, those who are deeply attached in religious faith, who are opposed to us and would rather see us dead. And then there's the West that's not attached to any faith at all would like to see us dead. They're two completely different currents here. Tonight we're talking about the Greek, the Greek philosophy which is what the West is built on. And it's not, <coughs> it's not a religious doctrine. It's, an, it's a non-religious, anti-religious doctrine that the only thing that is real that's, which is empirical, scientific, you can experience, you can evolve, explore philosophically, you can put in a lab, you can test. That's what the Greeks came to teach. And the Jewish message is that there's more than that. And the Greeks came to stamp out the idea that there's more than that. And the Greeks could do it because they came at a point in history where there was no evidence at all that there is anything more. You could never do this in the age of prophecy. The Greeks came at that juncture where prophecy no longer was and therefore they could say, look, look at the world. Look at the world. Do you see any evidence? Prove it. And if you ever try to prove to a Greek your spiritual understanding, he will always win the argument. Because it comes down to proofs. It's all on his side. And you want to prove that which the heart knows, that which is no longer evident in prophecy, that which is no longer confirmed by the miraculous. There's no evidence like that. And therefore you will no chance. And it's in the depth, the private depth of a Jewish heart that yeah, that, that little flame has to burn that has to defeat the Greeks. But there's evidence on all, all the evidence on their side. You know the battle of Gog and Magog the final pre-Messianic showdown. Gog and Magog are the grandchildren of Greece. If you trace the genealogy in Torah, you'll see they're, they're the Greeks. The final showdown, you know that the Roman Empire, in whose domain we live now, had no ideology. The Rambam says all the Romans did was lashlit, they came to take the Greek philosophy, lashlit al-kola olam, to, to make, to impose on the whole world Greek, Greek culture. Again, the culture of the West is not Roman, it's Greek. Anybody who knows anything about history knows that Western culture is entirely Greek in its mathematics, its aesthetics, its art, its, 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 its notion of a beautiful exter- exterior projecting a beautiful interior, right? whether it's in sport from the Olympic Games, whether it's in technology and philosophy, it's all a Greek. The Romans didn't come up with an ideology, they didn't have philosophers who originated things, the Greek were the philosophers who originated things, both in science, in philosophy and everything. The Romans spread that into an international culture. That's what they did. They were the might behind the ideology and the philosophy of Greece. So understand deeply, this is our battle. We've got the two, two edge, two, more than one battle, but this is one of the central issues that we face. So the Greeks came along and that's what they said. Let's take this further. Again, it's fundamental. You know, what the Greeks came against was our religious knowledge, our spiritual knowledge. You know, the most classic illustration, the Basalevi says, a, a, a startling observation. You know that in Jewish history, there were two times in the post-prophetic era, more or less, at that juncture, around then, where the non-Jews tried to kill us. Once was Purim, and once was Hanukkah. You know, two closely related events. At Purim, the idea was to kill all Jews. It was not an ideological battle at all, just kill Jews. Haman wanted to kill every Jew on earth on the same day. That all non-Jewish nations would rise up in one fell swoop at one time on one day and kill every Jew alive. Right? 
No arguments, no philosophical arguments, no Persian philosophy and ideology kill Jews. At Hanukkah, the idea was not to kill Jews at all, just to make them think like Greeks. The previous exiles, they tried to destroy the temple or destroyed it and kill Jews. The Greeks didn't destroy the temple or kill Jews. They just wanted to defile the temple, just put a Greek statue in it, and change the Jewish mind. That's all. They didn't want to kill Jews. They killed you if you didn't listen to their decrees, but only as a way of enforcing their philosophy. That's all they wanted. What was the Jewish response? Amazing thing. Haman comes along to kill Jews, physically, violently exterminate all Jews. What do the Jews do? They sit down on the floor and pray and do tshuva and fast. No one touches a weapon. No armed resistance. Physical threat of physical extermination, spiritual response. Hanukkah, they come along with a spiritual threat not to harm any Jews. And there's no praying or fasting. They pick up weapons and go out to fight to the death. What kind of thing is this? They come against you militarily to wipe you out. You sit down and fast and pray. They come against you spiritually. You take weapons and swords and you go out to fight the whole Greek army. A bunch of you know, they were, they were kahanim. Kahanim, they never held a weapon before. Never held weapons before. They went out to die. What is this? They attack you physically and you answer by prayer. They attack you physically and you go give your life in, in battle. You hear the paradox? And he says a fantastic explanation which is, strikes to the heart of what we are as Jews. We have a principle in Torah, everything in the hands of heaven, everything is in the hands of heaven. You have no control over anything except your relationship with heaven, your spirituality, your religious, your, your free will in terms of your elevating yourself spiritually. Right? Your religious identity, your religious connection. That's what you're here for. <coughs> so let's get it right. And non-Jewish nations come against you to wipe you out physically. It's in his hands. You have got no, pick up a weapon, it's completely useless. Again, the whole world is run by him. If they come to wipe you out physically, you have no chance. The only chance you have is trying to change his mind. You better pray. But when the Greeks come against you philosophically and ideologically, they attack your religion, that's the only thing that's in your hands. You better go down and fight for it. And therefore, when they attack us militarily, if he isn't going to help, nobody can help. If he's not going to help you, no amount of weapons is going to help you. And therefore, you better pray. But when they attack your religion, he doesn't help with that. That's you. That's the only part you have any freedom in. And therefore, when the Greeks attack you and try and change your mind and your notion, your connection to, to Hashem and, your, and, and what Torah is, that he says, this is, this, this is where I give you freedom. There you better take matters into your own hands. Right? Paradoxical, but that's the Jewish response. That was the Greek battle. They came to change our minds. <coughs> let's take it a little further let's track it historically first of all you know whenever we look for things and analyze them from a Torah perspective there's a methodology first of all we look in our own and yeah, we look in Torah where does it talk about this in Torah let me share with you two insights one in Tanakh in the written law where this is predicted presaged if you like and another in the oral law in the Talmud where is this Greek battle, the battle against Greek ideology? Where, where is it discussed in our sources? So again, we don't have time to go into the full details, but as uh, much as we can. In Tanakh, you know we have a principle, first of all, I presume we're all familiar. All dangers that attack the Jewish people begin with us, ourselves. All enemies start within. No non-Jewish enemy can touch us, unless we have that vulnerability, that weakness within ourselves. The, the, the relevant verse is The simple interpretation is your destroyers and annihilators will go out of you. Simple translation means one day those who destroy you and annihilate you will leave you. But the deep translation is your destroyers and annihilators come out from you. They're in you. That, that's where they come from. From you. If you don't attack yourselves, if you, if you Jews would only yeah, live in... in a harmony, peace, understanding, love of each other in complete spiritual perfection, there would there couldn't possibly be an external threat. Couldn't possibly be. So where's the source? The source is like this. You know, there were a series of kings of Judah who were terribly idolatrous. You know that. Terribly. Manasseh, for example. Uh, there are a number of generations where the kings set up idols. <laughs> Very, very, very evil, and they, 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 they distorted the whole of the Jewish people into idolatrous practices. There was one of them called Jehoiakim, who came along with a novel, um, evil uh, twist. And he said like this, again, these words one is not allowed to say, except to quote the way the Talmud puts it, because they, you'll see. You know, something. But the Talmud says like this, he came on and said, he said, Inundakadmoi means, those who came before me, Lo yadi larguze. Very hard to translate this. Those who came before me did not know how to really anger him. Really anger him. 
I'm going to show you how to really make him angry. You have to understand the mentality. You're talking about people of credible level of greatness. Back in the prophetic era, those who came before me set up idols to anger him and to go against him. They were amateurs. I'm going to show you how a professional does it. So he said this. What do we need him for? What do we need him for in the first place? Who needs him? Who needs him? You want to tell me we need him for light? Again, listen to Hanukkah coming in here. You want to tell me we need him for light? In, in modern English we would say energy, emanation from the sun that keeps all life going. We need him for light? We can manage without his light. We have our own. The Gemara quotes some substance that he mentioned. It's not clear to us technically what it means. I imagine it means some sort of phosphorescent or luminous substance that gives off its, gives off its own light. So he said, since he created the world and gave us substances like this, he built a world that is essentially self-contained, and therefore, who needs him? We don't need him. We are self-sufficient. We can manage quite well without him. That's what he said. That was his brand of anti-spiritual ideology that he foisted on the Jewish people in his generation. But listen carefully what's noteworthy here. This is not idolatry. Idolatry is you worship something other than Hashem. This is the notion that there's nothing at all to worship. We are self-contained, fully self-generating, self-maintaining. We don't need anybody else. That's the source of Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy is what's real, is what you can measure, put in a lab, empirically test, philosophically examine, and the West is built on that. Do you understand what's happening? The West is not built on idolatrous notions that you worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the zodiac. That's not Western philosophy. Western philosophy now is what you call atheistic. Atheistic doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. By the way, throughout all of human history, nobody ever supposed that God does not exist. That he's so stupid and so untenable that no one suggested it. What they suggested was, of course there's a God. How could the world have come into existence? But he's now irrelevant. <coughs> he's busy doing other things. He made it, wound it up, and it's running, and now he's irrelevant. We don't need him. That was, yeah, the notion that there's no such thing as God is, is, is the child of modern philosophy. Yeah, only now in the world's history have they come to such a, a notion. That never was the case. The worst idolaters idolaters always knew about God and related to him. Only they said that we can relate to intermediaries. And this philosophy was, he's disappeared, he's irrelevant. Jehoiakim didn't say God does not exist. He said we can do without him. That was the beginning of the notion of Greece uh, entertaining the idea of a divorced world, a world that, yeah, that is, in, is sufficient unto itself. <coughs> Now, let's take the next source. The Talmud puts it like this. This is worth tremendous concentration because of a fundamental and a fascinating message here. <coughs> and here's where you'll find the Greek in yourself, unfortunately. Yeah, it's right here. The Greek. It's not some philosophy written in an old textbook. The problem with the Greeks is this is where he lives. Here and here. There's a problem. And you think, you think I'm exaggerating? Yeah. I'll try and prove it to you. The Talmud says like this. What's the language? To make them forget the Torah. So a Jew, when he analyzes a subject like this, he researches, where do we find that terminology? Where do we find in the Talmud the terminology of a person forgetting Torah? Where do we find that? We find it in the birth of a child. Stay carefully with the thinking here. The, the Talmud says, and we've discussed this in other contexts, when a child is born, when a child is in the womb, he's taught the whole Torah. And the angel teaches him the whole Torah. He knows it all. He sees from one end of the world together. He has a light. Listen to Hanukkah again. A light lit above his head. And by that light he sees from one end of the world. This is called Oragonos, the hidden light. The hidden light that illuminates the whole world by which you see through things. Which incidentally the Menorah in the Mishkan, the, this, the, the, the Menorah in the Mishkan gave that kind of a light. During the years in the desert when that burned, you didn't see things, you saw through things. Right? The same light that had burned for the 36 hours yeah, that Adam had experienced it. Adam, the 12 hours that he found himself in existence on Friday, and the 24 hours of the first Shabbos on the earth, not, Adam experienced this supernal light, even after the sin. Only on Saturday night, once the Shabbos it went dark, that's when he discovered fire, where we make Havdalah with fire on Saturday night. But for 36 hours of his life, he saw this light that is the supernal light, the creation light. The Rokach says that's why we light 36 candles on Hanukkah. We light 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, and if you're a mathematical genius like me, you'll know that that adds out to 36. Why do we add 36 lights on Hanukkah? Because 36, each one for an hour of the original primal creation light that man experienced, it's a rekindling of that light in a very, very, very small reflection that we do of that original light of creation. <coughs> the child in the womb has this light lit above his head. You know what it means. 
what does it mean to see the whole world by a light lit above your head? That doesn't make sense. Normally, if you want to see something, you put the light on the thing, not on your head. Put the light on your head, you won't see anything. This means the light within the head. This is the spiritual. This means the inner knowledge, the spiritual knowledge, is what illuminates the whole world. That's the child sees one end of the world, and there's a whole Torah, his whole future, his whole destiny. What is as he's born, an angel comes, the sotral piv strikes him on the mouth, and makes him forget the Torah. Same language as is used by the Greeks, making us forget the Torah is what the Talmud says. The child is forced to forget the whole Torah, and he's born as a little baby who knows nothing. What's the purpose of this is not a nice discussion. We've discussed it before. The purpose is to give you a spiritual wisdom that's intrinsic and inherent in you and then to cause you to forget it so you spend your life recapturing and going back and redeveloping that which was once inner <coughs> wisdom. And that's why when you learn something spiritually true, you, you do not have a sense of learning something, you have a sense of recognizing something. Because it is already within and that's how you resonate and you know it's true and we've discussed this idea before. But as the child's born, this angel strikes him, and he loses his whole Torah knowledge, he's born as a child who knows nothing. The purpose being to struggle through life, <coughs> to regain that wisdom, <coughs> and get back in the end to the wisdom that he had first for free, this time having made it his own. I think I mentioned to you once that the Gona Vilna says that when you die, the Gemara says three angels come to greet you. One comes to add up all your mitzvahs, one comes to add up all your avarice, and one comes to see where's the Torah you produced in the world. What did you produce in terms of Torah? The God of Vilna says, when that third angel comes to greet you, you recognize his face. It turns out to be the angel who learned Torah with you when you were unborn in the womb. And now at the end of your life, he's coming to see, did you do it? That incredible wisdom that we shared together, that amazing partnership, that chavrusa that we had together. Now, after a lifetime of effort, have you brought that into fruition? That's what it is. But as the child's born, he forgets this wisdom. <coughs> What does this mean? What does it mean? How does he forget his wisdom? What does it mean? How does that process happen? Stay with me in detail. The Maral puts it like this. Amazing secret here. What is the meaning of a blow on the mouth? The angel strikes him on the mouth. If you would like to make somebody forget something, you hit them on the head. Hard. You hit them on the mouth. Why is a blow on the mouth the causing of forgetfulness? Says the Maral. The blow on the mouth is the gift of speech. A blow always is an invitation to grow in spiritual terms. I'm not going to go into why that is now, but that's the case. A blow always means a demonstration of your deficiency, and you feel the deficiency, and then you, you're motivated to expand into that area and reach your claim, reach your perfection. The blow on the mouth is the gift of speech. As soon as the child gets the rudiments of the ability to express himself in speech, he loses his spiritual wisdom. And the reason is this. And here's the key. Spiritual wisdom is beyond words. Technological wisdom is only in words. <coughs> right? Again, if you want to know if you understood something technical, see if you can explain it. If you can't explain it clearly, you do not understand it. A technological, mathematical, logical process. If you cannot express it, you didn't understand it. If you can't put it into a diagram, <coughs> into, into words, you did not understand it. But spiritual things, if you can put into words, you did not understand. Because spiritual things go beyond words. Things that are meaningful, things relating to the world of meaning, <coughs> expressly and specifically and only live beyond words. <coughs> Let me try to illustrate. The notion of meaning, the notion of the present, the notion of self, the things that you grasp deeply and intrinsically and intimately that are you, are not amenable to words at all. Again, let's, let's take a couple of examples. How do you know you exist? There's nothing more important than that. But in Greek philosophy, this is the most frustrating thing that there is, because in Greek Western philosophy, there's no proof that you exist. <coughs> Imagine that. You cannot prove you exist. Isn't that a little humiliating? This is something you have to know. A lecturer was once teaching his philosophy students that in, Greek, that in, in technical philosophy there's no proof of your own existence. So one student got very distressed. And after working on it for a week, he came back to the professor in a great panic. He said, Professor, you have to tell me, do I exist? You know, I don't. So the professor <coughs> said to him, who wishes to know? <laughs> <laughs> you see, but you cannot prove it. The most important things in life are not amenable to demonstration and words. Let me, let me, let me give you a test of this. How do you know you're awake right now? I mean, those of you who are. <laughs> <laughs> those of you who are awake. How do you know you're awake? How do you, you, you cannot know. Or put it another way, you know because you know. There's no proof. What are you going to pinch yourself? You could be dreaming that you're pinching yourself. When you dream, you think you're awake. 
That's why dreams are so terrifying. They're so ecstatic. Yet you don't know you're dreaming. You think you're awake. Otherwise, you wouldn't be terrified. So maybe you're at home in bed, sleeping, dreaming that you're here listening to a lecture. You cannot disprove that. But you know it's not so. How do you know it? By something that's got nothing to do with words, demonstrations, articulate expression. How do you know you're a man and not a woman? Do you think it's only because your body has an experience? How do you know you're Jewish? Do you think it's technical knowledge only that you were told? How do you know that there's a meaning to your life? How do you know that a love relationship you have with somebody very close to is actually meaningful and not just an orga- a, 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 a biological, chemical... How do you know you have free will? When you come to a free will decision in life and you can go right or left, and you choose, and you know you made a heroic decision, and the scientist tells you that was just the output of your inputs. That was biochemistry, genetics, environment, and, and you know it's wrong. You'll never prove it. On the contrary, if there are proofs, they're on his side. These are things you know beyond words. That is Torah. And Mona, the faith dimension, <coughs> knowing the higher world, we have to talk about it in much more detail, it's not an arbitrary inner thing. It's based on knowledge and critical thinking and logic, and I can't go into it now. But the inner world, the meaningful world, the world of connection to a higher source, that lives in a place beyond words. And if you can put it into words, you've broken it. Rabdesla says, there are two kinds of knowledge. External wisdom, which consists of the senses and logic, and internal wisdom, which has got nothing to do with that. The external wisdom which consists of interpretation of senses, accumulation of data, transduction of inputs by the senses, and the logical computational faculty, that any machine can do. Animals do it, machines do it, a machine can also measure things in the environment and come to conclusions. That's not human. What's human is is what a machine cannot do, it's the inner vision, the knowledge of self, the the consciousness, the knowledge of self, knowledge that no machine can have. And Western problem, that's a legacy of Greece, is the only tool they admit is the external one. They completely negate the internal tool. So even when they try and examine internal things, they use the external tool. How does Greek philosophy approach the problem of knowledge of self? Let's try and prove it intellectually. And of course it always breaks down. Dabdesla says there's a, the external wisdom is like a camera. A camera can take a picture of anything in the world, except the camera. If you want to do that, you've got to use another tool. Do you understand the problem that they've given us? They tell us, there's no such thing as internal things. You want to talk about it, consciousness? Right, let's do it on our terms. Let's talk about it in mathematical You've killed it. You've destroyed it. Those are the terms that kill it. This, this is not where it can live. <coughs> is the point clear? When the child is born and he's got the ability, he leaves the womb with its spiritual light and he comes into the world of articulate expression, he loses spiritual wisdom because he's in a world of the finite. <coughs> Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, he could not speak properly. Why? Because he was holding in a world of spiritual wisdom where those things can't be put into words. This wasn't a defect, it was his perfection. He couldn't speak because the things that he knew were divine in their amplitude, they were divine in their expansion. They were spiritual, all interconnected into the oneness of the universe. You can't say those things. After the Torah was given, he spoke normally because then the miracle of infinite wisdom in finite words had been done. But until then, he couldn't speak. (coughs) Another example. Kabbalistic wisdom. I know you're not interested in this, but I'll mention it. Kabbalistic wisdom. The Torah terminology for Kabbalistic wisdom is sod. Sod means that which is secret. So the unschooled, unsophisticated ear thinks that it's a secret because no one told you yet. One day they'll tell you. One day when you've got a long white beard, or if you're a man, <coughs> a longer white beard, they will tell you some ancient sage in the ancient you know, old city of Jerusalem will meet you and tell you the secrets. That's not the kind of secret we mean. This is not, not secret because nobody told you. Sod means that which nobody could ever tell you because there aren't any words for these things. It's always a secret. That's incidentally why the master teaches his disciple only in general terms. He's not allowed to tell him the details. Not because he's not allowed to, because you can't say the details. He has to guide him so that he gets his understanding himself. The great Torah sages were very careful not to speak an idea on Torah until they were sure that it had become part of them. Because they were concerned that if you bring it down into words, you lose its expansion... Rav Simchazisl once waited 25 years before sharing a deep Torah idea with his students because he was concerned that if he would speak it out, he would reduce it and lose it. Incidentally, many people, if you know anybody, if you have in your family somebody who went through the European experience 60 years ago, you'll find many of those people never spoke about it again, ever. It's a common phenomenon. 
Most people think because it's too painful they didn't speak. It's not the reason. The reason they never spoke about it is because you cannot speak about such things. You can't put those things into words. You can't even begin. Any words about it would just be a travesty of trivialization. And if you work in therapy, if you know anything about psychology or therapy, you know that when somebody's carrying a pain too big to bear, a very effective method of therapy is get them to speak about it. Because if they can bring it out into a finite number of words, and when it happens, it often pours out, then it becomes, begins to become manageable. Incidentally, it should be plain to you now, if you've been thinking with me, why are children, animals, and insane people able to connect to prophecy? Because these are three areas of intelligence where logical, verbal, articulate expression is damaged. And when the logical, finite, conventional, limiting yeah, packages of the expression, articulate expression of words, when that's damaged, the inner wisdom can be there. Of course, you can't get to it because there's no vehicle to express it. That's what animals, children too young to articulate, and yeah, people who are logically insane, where there's, no, where there's disintegration of, of intelligence... Now, they're not limited by these things, which are fantastic tools in terms of articulate expression and logic, technological knowledge, but they are terribly damaging to the inner wisdom. Human being, to be human, you have to be, to be a Jew. You have to be a highly, listen carefully, you have to have a highly developed external technological, math, yeah, mathematical, critically logical, radically logical mind. At the same time, you have to allow to flourish an inner wisdom that is the, that is the converse of this external wisdom. And what the Greeks have done to us, they allow only one tool. And once they've done that, they're safe. Because you can think about religion and spirituality and emuna and consciousness all you like, but if you're only allowed to think about it in the Greek terms of the finite, you damage it and kill it immediately. And that's what they've done. And if you think you're not Greek, you're 100% Greek. 99.999. And that's why you don't think. You talk to yourself in words. Knowledge, spiritual knowledge, does not go in words. You know things as they are. But they've trained us to not to think like that, except to, how do most of us think? We have a conversation. We've got this running, pathetic, idiotic, infantile talk show that's going on with the questioner doesn't know what he's asking and the answer doesn't. It's a, it's a culture we live in. If you, if you have the misfortune to turn on the radio ever, you'll hear some idiot asking a question that's completely irrelevant of some other idiot who's got no knowledge about the subject. And what do you think about the government's policy on this and that? He had the faintest clue what the government's policy is, what the facts on the ground are, what the, and the, he gives a comment, and, he, and it's broadcast for the whole nation. And people listen. Now, what hope is there for the spirit after that nonsense? But the worst thing is, it's not on the radio, it's in here. The way you think about things, you, the way you think about things is, you talk to yourself. And not only that, you don't even listen. While you're busy talking, you're already running around thinking what you're going to answer. And you've got this infantile conversation going on, you never actually know anything. How do you solve a human problem? You've got a problem with a person, how do you solve it? You know you solve it, you talk to yourself, you say, well, I'll say this and this and this, and then they'll say that and that and that, then I'll say that. You run through a conversation, you don't actually allow yourself to know. The exercise of knowing is called meditation. But you know what happens to a Westerner when he tries to meditate? He goes to a spiritual teacher who teaches him how to meditate. So the first thing the teacher says is, in order to meditate, you have to switch off the mind. So the person sits there and he becomes a zombie. <laughs> switch off the mind. When you switch off the mind, you become comatose. That's what happens. It's nice and relaxing. It's got nothing to do with meditation. Meditation is switching on the mind. What the teacher means is switch off the external mind. That's what he means. Switch off the limiting, articulate, finite mind that keeps needing to put things in categories and words. And That's what he means. But how, how do you say that? Yeah? So that, How do you say switch on the mind? So the advice is still the external mind. Still the mind that has its pathetic conversation in childish terms, that is thinking in terms of words and finite concepts. Still that. And you'll find you know. When the child's born and he comes into the world of articulate expression, he loses the wisdom. And that's what the Greeks did. They said, Jews, we want you to think like Greeks. We want to put you in such a rich world of experience, of scientific and empirical proof, where you derive things logically and philosophically, and we test them in the lab. That's all we allow you to define as real. And this thing that you call your belief, your system of thing, your transcendent wisdom, your attachment to the higher world. And today, in, in educated society, if you start speaking religion, that's feely, feely, emotional stuff. That's completely irrelevant. Give us the facts, the scientific, technological facts. And the scientific, technological facts divorce you from meaning. 
course they're necessary. Of course they're necessary. The world of technology and science, of course it's necessary. That's where you operate. But if it doesn't have the dimension of inner knowledge, you're a machine, you're a robot, you're a, you're a... Machines can do that much better. They don't argue with each other, they don't fight with each other, they don't torture people, they don't... Much more pleasant. That's the battle. And the final showdown is the, when Gog and Magog, that Greek army, marches against us, that's the showdown. This is the battle we experience now. What are the last 300 years of Jewish history? Think about it for a moment. Until 250 years ago, the Jewish people was universally, intensely devoted to Torah and to Hashem. There were pockets of, of dissension and uh, there always have been problems. But by and large, even the least knowledgeable Jew was intensely attached. In the last 250 years, we've reached the stage where, where, no, where 90% of the Jewish people have got no attachment at all. You know, the last 10 years, two surveys have been done in America. They show over 50% of American Jews, over 50% of American Jews. You're talking about a generation or two after Jews were tortured, burned alive, gassed, just because they were Jewish. Yet, shortly after that, a few short years after, you have the majority of the Jewish people who can, can trace no attachment to anything Jewish at all. The, the recent survey allowed any definition of anything Jewish. I'm not talking religion. I'm talking about a weightlifting club, a Jewish community center, a book club, anything. Jewish cookery, anything. 52% of American Jews can show no attachment to anything Jewish at all. That means they would intermarry, not because they've got a problem with Judaism, because they don't even know it's an issue. If that isn't a Greek victory, I don't know what is. The final showdown is the showdown. It's where the West accepts a technology, a, a wisdom, a science, a philosophy that is entirely empirical, entirely based on expression, in proofs, in, in arguments. And what goes beyond that is disallowed. Not it's disallowed, it's just not valid. That's not thinking, that's not truth. The Greeks said to the Jewish people, Kis Write for yourselves on the horn of the ox. That you have no share in the God of Israel. The horn of the ox. The ox always means assertion of power. The horn <coughs> is always the place of superior attachment. That means where the thing moves to the higher, yeah, to its higher expression. That's where you write that you've got there are many other meanings to this horn as well. It means a golden calf. It has many other meanings. But, and it's curved also because that's where, in Kabbalistic thinking, where the spiritual world attaches to the physical world straight, there's no mistake can be made. It's where it curves away in Kabbalistic thinking, where a curve or a corner takes place, is where the danger occurs. That's why we wear these. You know what tzitzis means? Is where the garment enters a corner. No more straight line. We put on the tzitzis to continue the straight line. That's what tzitzis are. That's why you see these, you remember the spiritual world. That's why they go on a corner. On straight places, you don't need any. You're on a straight road, you never get lost. On a straight road, you turn around, you see where you came from instantaneously. There's no problem. It's on a road that's taken a bend, and then you carry on walking. When you turn around, you look back, you just see a bend in a road. No meaning, no point of origin. To be a Jew, you have to see round corners. To be a Greek, you just have to look straight. Wherever you go back to, that's where it started. Ah, it's meaningless. Who cares? Irrelevant. To be a Jew, you've got to see round corners. You have to go back and see, that's just a fork in a road, but I came from someplace out of sight. That's what it means. But they disallow that. Ah, you can't see it. How are you going to test that? Give me a proof. As a Jew, you have to know where you came from. You have to know who you are. You have to know that you came from someplace out of sight around the corner. You can't prove that to a Greek. On the contrary, he can easily disprove you. So what's happened in the West is, not that they've taken away our religion, they've taken away the, the means, <laughs> they've taken away the road. Not just they've got you lost, they've, they've erased the road. They've taken away the means, they've taken away the terminology, they've taken away the tools. So today you start speaking to a Jew about Jewish identity, the, ter the terms are perverted. He thinks you mean, in a Greek way, let's discuss it and see if we can prove it. So the whole discussion's ended. It's, try it's like trying to talk about your knowledge of self. All you can do is damage it. The only way you can ever communicate with somebody on a deep level about deep things is if you don't have to speak. When two people really know each other, and a glance or a gesture or a wink or a slight change of expression is enough, they are communicating. But a person that you have to speak a lot to communicate, you might as well forget about it. The more you say, the worse you're going to make it.
all this talk is useless, obviously, because all <laughs> all words. It's all Greek. All Greek. It's all Greek words. Because hmm? these are the only words we have, and it's the only words we're able to hear. They haven't won the war. They've buried the enemy. They've, they, 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 they're not trampling on us. We're too deep underground to feel it. That's what Hanukkah is. Hanukkah is a reassertion of that inner dimension. It's a reassertion of that inner dimension. It's a rekindling of that original light. The light of the menorah. That's what a Jew has to do. That's what it is. Why is it oil? Why is it oil? Do you know what oil means? In Kabbalistic, in, 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 in deeper wisdom, oil means Chachma, wisdom, Torah wisdom. The Gemara asks about why people of a certain place were so deep and wise, they were habit, habituated to drink a lot of olive oil. Why oil? Because Shemen in Hebrew is the same word as Shmone, which means eight. Shemen in Hebrew means that which goes beyond. Shemen means expanded. Shmone is eight. The natural world consists of seven parts, seven colors in the spectrum. Yes, seven. The whole natural world is comprised of seven. That's what the Greek world is. Six sides, three dimensions, six sides. The seventh, which bonds them into an element that transcends the components, but is still visibly there. And we say we go to eight. And that's why oil, shemen, shmone, goes to the eighth dimension which transcends, and Hanukkah is eight days for that reason. Circumcision is on the eighth day because it takes the physicality of the body and it gives it the spiritual ability to transcend. The word shmone in Hebrew, which spells eight, if you rearrange the letters, it spells neshama. The soul, which is that which transcends the body. And if you rearrange it again, it spells mishnah, which is where they're written in oral law meet, transcending, one transcends the other. That's the battle. And so they entered the temple and rededicated and they found the oil that was pure. Contamination of oil, you have to understand, isn't only a ritual problem. It's a spiritual problem. Contaminating the oil means the Greek came in and they contaminated the Jewish mind. That's what they want. The inner sanctum of Jewish holiness. And say, that's what they wanted. They want to kill us. Go and do something worse. Something that's worth going out and fighting if you've never held a weapon before. Because nothing else, if they, once they've extracted your mind. That's what they did. And the Hashemur, they came in and they took that oil. That's why they were Kohanim. They were priests. Those who reconnect to the higher world. The Maral says that the word Kohen, how beautifully can you say it? The word Kohen, in Hebrew, Kohen, adds up to 75. What does that mean? Exactly between 7 and 8. 7 is the natural world. 8 is the transcendent world. The Kohen is the one who stands between the two, takes off his shoes, leaves the physical plane, goes into the sanctuary of the Mikdash, the Holy Zone, and connects us to him and him to us. So they were the ones who came in and made the reconnection with oil, which is the eighth element, for eight days, and it burned miraculously again, showing again the dimension of prophetic and miraculous in the natural, which is where we are as Jews. We lift the natural to the miraculous. Uh, I hope the point is clear. That's the battle. And so on Hanukkah, when you light that small light in your window, you have to understand what you're doing. So the ancient ritual of Jewish kind of, you know, they put, you know, trees. So we put... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand, you're living in a world that is thoroughly a Greek world. It's a world in which the definition of reality is that which, which is Greek. And the definition... I'm not about the Far East. The Far East is a definition. The Far East, the terminology, the, the, the currency in the Far East is spirituality. It's a definition. That's separated from us. In the West, where we live, our historical, our destiny of interaction with the West is with the philosophy of empirical scientific wisdom. That's where it is. And so when you like this thing and you're asserting a reconnection, you're burning in your window, you have to know what you're doing. And that's why the mitzvah of the menorah is not allowed to use it. Not allowed to use the light. It's there as in Kedusha, like the temple, like the menorah in the temple. That's all. And it's no accident that women are specially attached to it. Women are the beings of faith of Emunah. They carry that within themselves. Women are specially related to Hanukkah. First of all, there were decrees against Jewish women. There was a Jewish woman who started the whole rebellion and the whole redemption. Bring birth to the world in that sense. That's what it is. You light that light in the window. The, the, the inner kavana. If you want to know what you should feel when you're lighting that thing. But you're making a statement that shines out from your window against the whole culture. That's what you are. Making a statement, right? You're making a statement of inner wisdom that is silent, that can only be known in silence. It's a meditation of yeah, training yourself to know things beyond words as they actually are, which is what Torah is. 
Torah is a vessel of immaculate, impeccable logical structure that carries within it a soul that goes beyond, goes beyond logic. And it thrives off, and, and it's because of the logic, and yet transcends it. That's what Torah is. As you light that light, which is made of pure olive oil, in a Jewish window, you're shining a message out to the world that th- this celebrates that which is miraculous. And that's the final battle. The way to handle the battle is not to be Greeks better than them. What does the Jewish people become? They out Greek the Greeks. That's what we're going to do. That's what we are, Jewish people. Aha. Have Olympic Games. No? Expose the body and go out and show that the body is paramount. And they run with a torch from Olympus and say, what we'll have Maccabi Games. That's what we'll do. Okay, the torch will run from Modi'in. Can you imagine who's turning in his grave? Such a Nothing wrong with sport. But is he going to do the Jewish version of what the Greeks... You're supposed to be again? <laughs> it's too heartbreaking to go into. Anyway, the point is that that's the philosophy, that might is right, intellect is right, that which is provable, that which is demonstrable. That's where it's at. And Judaism says that's where it begins. That's only the substrate, that's only the training of the intelligence, that's only the seven lower dimensions that have to be mastered. But then you have to go beyond that, otherwise you're a machine, you're a zombie, you're a... You're a cheap talk show. That's the faculty of silence. It means developing the ability to be silent and to know things. That's the first tool of spiritual development, the world of faith. The world of Imuna lives, thrives only in that dimension that goes beyond. Essentially meditational. Without, without that meditation, life... They used to pray in the old days, that, you know, the Jewish people used to prepare themselves in meditation for an hour before every tefillah, and an hour to come down afterwards. They spend nine hours a day in that exercise before connecting to the source. It's a deep meditation where the mind is completely silenced, the external mind. Anyway, this is the idea. The idea of Hanukkah, this year should be a little different. Instead of being engaged in this absolute flood of meaningless chatter, each word of which means less than the previous, right, is the Jew has to be selective. You have to understand how to take that which is necessary logically as a substrate of your of your basis of your intellect and from there you have to learn how to connect it to that which is meaningful which essentially is beyond words not illogical it's a different kind of logic it's a transcendent form of logic where, where things are known as they are where meanings where mean, the meaning is felt known expresses itself in the silence of inner knowledge I will stop thank you